welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. All right, we'll get going. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here at the Houston Cannon with Fred Miller, President and CEO at Navigation Petroleum. This has been a long time coming. I think, you know, the gentleman Ryan has to be with us today. It's This isn't on video, well, at least for OGGN quite yet, but he's here taking content. So a big shout out to Ryan. He helped set this up. And so thanks for being so persistent, Ryan. You know, big thumbs up from Ryan. He's he's working hard and, and making the magic happen. So we're definitely here to discuss navigation, Fred's story. But before we get going, I just want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing the components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the wellpad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about all the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes and check them out on LinkedIn. So Fred, before we dive into navigation and maybe some of your story, but obviously within the last year, we've seen some, it's been a challenging year to say the least, but how are you or navigation, whether it's personal branding, whether it's marketing business, how are you innovating moving forward? Everyone's kind of had to recalibrate, if you will. So what does that look like for you? So we often get asked how we accomplish what we accomplish Mm -hmm. because we're a small team. Mm -hmm. So it kind of leads to a natural process of innovation at the company. And everyone's charged with finding something that makes them more efficient, more able to perform the massive amount of duties that we have to take on individually. And so in our geoscience department, That could be something just as easy as, hey, I'm going to work from home today and be very flexible on schedules to something more complicated on location, fine-tuning how we're geosteering our well. So Hmm. it's everything from how we run our office all the way from the back office to the the in-the-field process. And some of the innovation that we've seen has been tailored around more well design, the process that we put in place for that, and not necessarily getting bogged down on things that don't really have a material benefit at the end of the delivery of the well. Okay. And so we try to identify things that people get hung up on Hmm. and say, okay, how much time are you going to really put into that? What's that doing for us? Right. And we see is some shops seem to be very geo heavy. Some are very engineering heavy. And then some are more like planning and process execution heavy. And then you get some guys that are just like, just just like a straight marketing team or something, right? Yeah. And so we try to bring a really good balance. You'll see it in a lot of our announcements. We refer to this holistic process that we have. Cool. And so we we take from the very beginning, everyone's involved. And throughout the process, 
we keep everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And that's what delivers the well results that we've been able to deliver. Nice. And you look at 2020 and that was a tough year for a lot of people and, and us. It was, it was hard. Anyone in energy tied to energy <laughs> was certainly felt some form of it. <laughs> that's right. You can't take away 40% of any business's revenue. Yeah. And then say, hey, you're going to be okay. Right. So for us, it looked like, well, what are you going to do? Well, we'd already had such in-progress movement down on our LOS for our our production that it really materialized as the price was coming down. Mm. So we saw some of the, the benefits of just small things, working on compressor runtime and making little tweaks to the compressors and working with the compressor companies for doing that. Right. And those things done in the field yielded this last month, we had zero compressor downtime, like literally no hours. Wow. Would you say that during the last year, COVID kind of forced folks, including yourselves, to get a little bit more granular into understand different processes, looking at maybe just things that otherwise you would have kind of overlooked due to how, you know, quote unquote, busy everyone was? I mean, did it give you an opportunity to look under the hood to kind of really fine tune things? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's something that we, we tend to do anyways, but I think other people... We're seeing what we did as a process and, and probably mirrored it a little bit if they weren't just doing it independently because everyone's going to move towards that. Yeah. I think you're going to see in the business more people saying, hey, you can't be too focused on this one thing. And so you need to bring everyone to the table. But to your point, yes, be very granular. Get down into the details. Mm. Take everything apart and see what's really moving the levers. Right. Because that's what people often miss. The good example is I used to have this rule of thumb. I was like, oh, your LOE is probably a third salt water, third chemicals and, you know, pumpers and all this other repairs and maintenance become that other part of the wedge. Right. Well, depends on where you're at. Yeah. And, and then how good things are going. Because if you have dedicated salt water and your salt water is low enough on a water oil ratio from coming out of your wells, it's not 30%. It may be like in our case, more like 10% or 15%. Right. And so then you're paying attention to different parts of the wedge. And it's that awareness from the very top that graduates down into the other guys. And they're seeing it from the field. Right. And having that direct line of communication across the entire company, people are making decisions like that. And, yeah. and they're changing things constantly. We tried some paraffin cutting techniques and just spacing out when you do it, mixing with chemical, without chemical. And we did a few trials. We found that we didn't need the chemical. Hmm. And we're like, wow, that's fantastic. There's that's a big cost there. elimination. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah. No, so, that's that's a great example. So I guess what's one thing like going through 2020 and maybe even before that a little bit, what, what are you pleasantly surprised about? Whether that's somehow we're magically still producing like 11 million a day or <laughs> <laughs> which to me, I always, the, the fundamentals to me are, but anyway, is there anything else that kind of surprises you or is there something that you kind of can, and, and whether that's like, you know, energy markets or just, you know, the business aspect of things, are you kind of thinking, you know what, wow, this actually is surprisingly benefited or. So that is interesting because we talk about at the office all the time, how a lot of us of the mindset that, oh, working remotely is something that's it's going to you know decrease our efficiency but being impacted by Harvey being you know a Houston based company mm-hmm. and having people being set up remotely yeah we had them already set up so mm-hmm. we were able to transition to the house very quickly and that was fantastic it took about a week and people were used to working 
on teams. They were sharing data back and forth. People were seemed to be as productive, if not more productive. Okay. And I think it was neat because it helped reset everyone's mindset on what that meant working right. from home. It wasn't some abstract dream of the average working man. It was <laughs> yeah. It was now like, oh, this actually works. And right. the telecommuting thing, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then as time went on, I think the big surprise was how many people really wanted to get back to the office <laughs> and yeah. have that person-to-person contact. Yeah. There's just some kind of magical team dynamic that you can't get through a flat screen. Yes, you can see the other person, but truly reading the body language, you know, seeing someone three-dimensionally, mm-hmm. it really does make a difference. Well, I think there's a lot of research that suggests that the body language is you're reading that just as much as you are the linguistic part of it. And there's things called flow state. It's hard to get yep. in a flow state in a group of people virtually, but you get, you know, you, me, maybe two or three other people in this room together and we're bouncing ideas and you can kind of see someone get excited. And the next thing you know, you're feeding off the energy. I mean, you can't, at least in my opinion, can't get that online. And, okay. and I think some of the big, biggest innovation ideas come from those type of environments. And so I can appreciate that from, from my position. I'm in oil field services and I'm on the sales and business development side, but some of the best meetings me and the rest of the salesmen and, and technical folks have are together and we don't get that virtually. And so now we're in a position where it's like, okay, like our boss has basically said, you know, we understand you can't sell, you know, X, Y, Z sitting, sitting in the office. So mm-hmm. we, we've never expected you to be here, but now that we certainly do have the option come in X amount of days a week, let's collaborate and then divide and conquer. And, but having the flexibility where no one's saying you have to be here from eight to five. And yeah. because I think we've proven to ourselves and, and, you know, our, our bosses and companies and organizations and investors that like working from home, there's, it can be possible. And I think from a culture perspective as well, it's like, you know, if, if like a upper management from a company allows their people to say, Hey, I have to pick my child up at three o'clock every day. Yeah. It would mean the world <laughs> to me to do that. I'll work from six till nine at night or whatever that looks like to make up for that time. Why not? You know what I mean? Because if you can create a a positive environment for people who want to still work with the company, but maybe don't feel like they're at the mercy or constrained by office hours. I think that's a win for everybody. I'm a big fan of flow state. I I mean, anything from sports to, you know, working in a team. I'm fascinated by it. So keep going. I mean, so... (laughs) I remember when I first started reading about it and then, you know, listened to a couple guys that were supposed to be experts on the internet. And, mm-hmm. and I was just fascinated by the idea of like, okay, you're, you're in this heightened state of awareness. Everything's really coming together. You can see things that you normally wouldn't be able to see. Other team members are picking up on your energy and there's this synergy of just amazing high level of, of work capacity yeah. in anything you're taking on. And, yeah. and I thought, wow, man, this, I can look back and see periods of time where that existed yeah. and you didn't know it. And, and then you come out of that and you're like, well, what was the result? And I think back to when me and one of my partners at the company, his name's Gary Guerrero, he's a geologist. We first met and we were working on some materials together and we were looking at this old field and we started working on it. And we put these huge cross sections on the wall. I mean, these things were like 15 feet wide and like six feet tall. <laughs> yeah. There's all these notes on it. And then we just st- st- take a step back and you're looking at it and it's starting to like crystallize. Oh, we need to do this, 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 and this. And it's just a fury of writing down what you need to do. Yeah. And so he would work up his part and I work up my part. Well, we had a, a 20 out of 21 recompletion program success story. Wow. 
And like the average payout time was less than two months. No kidding. And so after that, our reservoir manager who was above us, who he would come in and he'd go, what else you got? <laughs> yeah. That last program worked out really good. So <laughs> yeah. If you guys can bring a little more like that to the surface, that'd be great. No kidding. Yeah. And that's it, so cool. It was almost like writing your check at that point because we were both working at Devon at the time. They literally asked us, well, what would you like to do next? And then it was like, oh, horizontal completions, please. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time it was just, you know, old vertical wells and right. looking at old oil fields and stuff. And yeah. So that, that, I think back to that flow state. Yeah. I was like, man, we, we did a lot together like that. Right. And so when we started the company, someone asked me like, so you have a geologist, right? I'm like, well, no, not yet. Well, who do you want? I thought, hmm, dream geologist? Well, Gary. Yeah. Turns out he was consulting and was available and there came right on board. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and again, did that sort of experience spark the interest of, of that environment or because you said you're interested in flow state and you've read about it. Is that something like, does that come from, you know, as a younger, like, where did you play sports? I mean, how early in your life did you kind of recognize like, this is something that's really unique? I think I first saw it in college. Okay. Because you would get into the mode of studying or looking at something and you're like, man, I can I really can't understand this. And then all of a sudden something would click. Hmm. And then you would see it more in math than anything. So you'd be learning about something. And you're like, oh, well, I could do this, this, and this to add on mm-hmm. and take this problem a little further. And you get the next chapter and it's what you just thought of. Yeah. Like, oh, someone's already discovered that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's how your mind is working. It's making the connections before you know the connections. Yeah. And I just love it when that happens. It's almost like a sense of euphoria. It is. Yeah. No, you almost go into this state where... Like everything else around you. And, and I first experienced this in sports where, you know, I grew up playing football and basketball and baseball. And yeah, it was almost like you get into this daydream mode where like everything's happening and you're there, but you're not really there. But you're so focused that you almost have like tunnel vision on the critical task at hand and everything's just working and flowing. And so, again, I never I could never label it at the time. I just thought, you know, it just so happened to be. But it's fascinating to get into that environment now in the business world. Again, kind of tying it back to, again, I think that's important for people to recognize in business is it's, it's important to bring people together to achieve those environments and, and those experiences. But again, it, it is interesting to me. I read some, I think it was, I read a book, Fire or something. Anyway, I'm trying to, I'm drawing a blank, but there's a lot of, a lot of research and studying going on with that. And oh, yeah. It's very interesting stuff. So you, you talked a little bit about college, but I'd like to kind of dive a little bit even before then. So where are you from originally? So originally I'm from North Louisiana. Okay. I was born there and pretty much raised there until I was about six and a half. Okay. And then we moved here to Houston. And so I went from a small rural town in, in Louisiana. Which which part? So it's outside of Shreveport. It's called Doyleen. It's in between Monroe and Shreveport. Gotcha. At the time, I think it was like maybe a thousand people or something. Yeah. Had one school and we lived actually on a deer lease. No kidding. My mom was a, a single mom and she had me and my sister. So we... Grew up there and out in the middle of the woods kind of thing. Yeah. Then you go from there to inner city Houston off of Harwin and Alday Street, about as densely populated as it gets. <laughs> Which part of Houston is that for folks who maybe are not familiar? Okay, so that would be uh, kind of the south side of Houston. Okay. Just right near... In the loop? or In the loop. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Wow. Like in, well, inside the beltway. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was kind of industrial at the time, so... You can imagine you go from playing in the woods to playing in abandoned warehouses. So. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So what brought your 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 mother and, and your you and your sister here? 
the oil the oil industry ah, so okay. it, was, it was great it, my mom had uh, she was going to college at the time okay she had a job offer here in houston cool. and you go from living in a place where the church you know set you up with a friend that would take you in to having a kind of a two-bedroom apartment that was a big step up yeah then my mom really wanted to have a opportunity for my me and my sister to be able to make more of ourselves and she figured that would only be possible in houston cool yeah yeah, yeah. Interesting. So you come here, you're six, you're playing in abandoned warehouses, big city of bright lights. Beyond that, you know, you did you guys stay here? Did you move away and come back? Or did you basically pursue and then high school, college, you went to A&M? But, but what was like sort of, you know, you got the high school life. Were you interested in STEM stuff or what was Fred like was back always, in the day? I was interested in, in science and math and spelling was never my forte. So I had a little bit of dyslexia. I still do. Some um, people say that's a strength. I had a reservoir professor in college and he, he always used to, because he could never spell, you know, and it was yeah. just kind of a funny side note here, but he'd be writing on the board and back when they still did, I don't know if they do write on the boards anymore, but it was a whiteboard and he'd be spelling things and I would say, you miss a letter here or there. And, and he'd be like, <laughs> guys, look, I are engineer. Okay. Like they don't teach us a spell and grammar and reservoir engineering. But I think, you know, he always said it's a strength of mine. So, yeah. you know, he was kind of a bit comical. He'd tell us to shut up and a few other things, but he always used to, you know, it was almost like he took pride in the fact that he oh, didn't yeah. know how to spell. <laughs> it's funny. That's one of the things I got held back in the second grade Okay, because I was having so much difficulty reading uh-huh. and, and spelling, but in math, they always had me with the grade up. Wow. Fascinating. And so it was, that was great. And I loved art, loved drawing. And one of the teachers was like, oh, you'll probably end up an engineer. Like it was a, like mm. a death sentence or something. And I'm like, <laughs> like, that's okay. It, yeah. Because, you know, I was always interested. Could be a lot worse. Yeah. I remember in the second grade, I think it was Quail Valley Elementary. We were watching the shuttle take off. Okay. It blew up. This is the one with the Challenger. Yeah. And I remember watching that and they were, they were shuttling us out of the, or pushing us out of the library as quickly as they could to get us back to class because teachers didn't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember still like walking by the, the TV and you're just seeing the, because they, they stayed on it mm-hmm. and just seeing like that fireball. And, you know, you, you question a seventh grader or a seven-year-old's memory, but I kind of remember at that time being like, how did that happen? Like, just so curious about it. I thought it was terrible, but then I thought, well, well, I want to be an engineer and I don't want to ever let something like that happen again. Wow. And my mom's like, you want to do what? (laughs) I'm like, I want to be an engineer for, you know, rockets. Yeah. And she goes, you mean like a rocket scientist? And I'm like, I don't think that's it, but sure. Yeah. (laughs) Something around there. Yeah. And so I got really interested in aerospace. I mean, I stayed interested in that for a long time. In fact, I went to A&M as an aerospace engineer. Ah, why A&M? Well, I had a, a bunch of buddies who were going there, and okay. they had a good program for aerospace engineering. Not as good as Embry and Riddle at the time. And where is that? That's over, I think it's in Louisiana, but it was a, huh. a school that's fairly close that had a, it was a private program, so it was a little expensive. Okay. And I, I couldn't afford it. But I went to a high school called the High School for the Engineering Professions. Wow. And I was, it's a magnet program here in Houston. Hmm. It's at Booker T. Washington High School. And it was a fantastic program. The teachers there were amazing. Due to some family issues in like my senior year, I left that school and returned to my home school, which was Robert E. Lee High School. That's a HISD school. It's definitely not a magnet school. What do you mean by magnet school? I'm from Canada. I have no idea what that means. So in Houston, you have Vanguard schools, magnet schools. These are programs that you have to test 
and apply to get in for. And there can be as many as couple hundred applicants to maybe 300 applicants per spot that's available. Right. Do you have to be super smart to get into it, basically? Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to be the right guy they're looking for at the time. Okay. And I think that was my case. <laughs> Fair enough. I did pretty good on the test, yeah. but they actually needed some more students that fit my profile. Perfect. There you go. Booker T is a historic black school in Houston. Oh, and okay. so part of the desegregation act was to put in these magnet schools at these traditionally black schools wow. to bring in different races together wow. so that they could attend. And so going there, I was one of several white students there out of about 400 in that program. Cool. But we had all sorts of people there. I mean, we had Asian kids, different, like, you know, Houston's got a very strong Vietnamese population. So we had a lot of Vietnamese students. Hmm. We had very, very few Hispanic students though. Okay. But it was, it was an interesting program because what it ended up being is that parents wanted their kids to go to good engineering schools, so they would send their kids there, try to get them in. Wow. We even had a, a guy from Russia no way. that tested in. And I'm like, how did that happen? He's not he's not a citizen. Like, <laughs> right? And this is for like Houston. Right. <laughs> I still that remember is- his name is Marat. He's okay. a super smart guy. Wow. But yeah, he belonged there for sure. Okay. Yeah. He made just connections or something. Yeah. Who knows? Wow, that's a that's very interesting. I didn't know that existed, especially back like that was obviously yeah. a few years ago. Fascinating. Okay, Magnus well, they would go advertising at the middle school, so a lot of times they would come in and say, "Hey, we're Bel Air. We're an IB school, International Baccalaureate. So you're going to come here. We're going to put you through a very strenuous process. You're going to go to AP classes, but you're also going to have to learn a language to fluency by the time you graduate." Hmm. And they had Mandarin Chinese. They had French, German, and, and they offered up something else that was a little more exotic. Okay. And I remember sitting in that program listening to this lady, and, and she sounded very proper, and <laughs> she was talking about languages, and I'm like, I can't spell anyway. So yeah, it <laughs> doesn't matter. And so I, I remember I was kind of like looking down and just not really listening. Yeah. And she goes, I'm sorry, am I boring you? Oh, my goodness. And I was like, <laughs> and you're a kid and this is an adult, you know, that's yeah, you don't know that. an authority figure. Yeah. I said, no. <laughs> and she's like, do you just not want to go to, to Bel Air? I said, no, I don't want to go to Bel Air. <laughs> not really. Like, so she's like, why not? Right. And I'm like, well, now I'm on the spot. And I'm like, I'm going to go to the high school for the engineering professions. I don't think I'd do well at your school. Right. Yeah. There you go. Like, okay. Yeah. And she went on and I ended up going there with four friends from middle school. Cool. We all ended up going to A&M together. Really? Yeah. Wow. Are and you... some of us roomed together. Okay. And we're still friends today. Okay. I was going to say, I would imagine they're lifelong friends. Are they in oil and gas as well? So yes and no. Everybody's been in and out of it. But you no, know, one of my, my friends, he, he used to be in sales and oil and gas, but he was selling motors and stuff like that. But he, On the, for like directional of, stuff? No, like for big plants. Ah, okay. Like electric motors. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. He's gone on to doing other things now. Okay. I don't even know what he's selling, but he's selling something. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. One's a salesman, always a salesman. Oh, he, he loves it. It's, he's born to do it. So okay. It's his calling. Yeah. For sure. So how was your experience at A&M? It was good. Yeah. It was good. I had to transfer in. I had a... I'd left Booker T, gone to Robert E. Lee, was working at a marble slab ice creamery as an assistant manager and paying for my own apartment and, and food in my senior year. Wow. But I only had to go to class twice a day. I had two classes that I had to finish up, but they offered them in the opposite semesters. 
So I had to go for my senior entire senior year. I'd already accumulated enough credits at at HSEP to get me within two classes of graduating Ah. by the time I'd started as a senior. Gotcha. But in HISD at the time, you had to take three classes to qualify for going to school. Hmm. So I'd show up to my first class that I needed to graduate with, and I tried to make a deal with the teacher. And I said, look, if I can come in here and take a test and get a B. Will you give me a C? Will you just like, let me get out of this place? Yes. I need to work. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, I was in the mode of, I have to figure out how to like have a career. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Okay. Because doors seemed to be closed at the time. And it's just one of those moments in life where you kind of realize like, give it some time and things will change. Mm. I mean, it was a incredibly stressful time. I bet. Taking the metro everywhere. In the middle of summer, even. So when, you know, you're not even in school, it's like 95 degrees on the street. And, you know, the heat in Houston is just baking you. And you're no. going into an ice cream store and, you know, you pack your extra shirt so you can change your sweaty shirt off. And then you got a clean shirt on. But mm-hmm. that kind of set me up to looking for better and better jobs in Houston. And eventually, I went from ice cream store guy, waiter, waiting tables, to eventually getting a break and working offshore. Wow. And my first job was as a sample catcher. Okay. And went having worked a few months as a sample catcher, I realized I was going to make enough money to be able to pay for room, board, and all my tuition at junior college. And having been three years out of high school, A&M had already denied an application and said, no, sir, <laughs> not fit to be an Aggie. Oh. And I went, whoa. It, took, it gives you, you know, a reality check. Right. They're like, your grades are stale. Doesn't matter. I'm Jeez. Like, well, okay. So now what? Hard luck. Go join the army. Okay. So go down to MEPS. Try to get an army scholarship, you know, get in. It's peacetime. So what does that mean? So no wars going on. And everything's oh, gotcha. kind of relaxed. They find out that I had a diagnosis of asthma one time. And I mean, it went, came and went and it was gone and they, they said permanently disqualified. No way. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, what do I do? How do I go to school? Like working as a waiter is not going to do it. Yeah. Right. So then got a job working offshore with Stratigraph. Okay. How'd you land that? So I called my mom complaining. Right. Like, you know. It's like every son does. Yeah. Mom. Mom, you know, (laughs) I think it was like, I asked her like, how am I supposed to save up thousands and thousands of dollars to go to school? I can't get loans. I can't qualify for a Pell Grant. Like, it's like $200. I'm like, that pays for nothing. Right. And she goes, you need to get a better job, honey. And I'm like, well, how do I do that? I don't have like any real set of skills, you know. Mm. I can go labor away, but I'm never going to save up enough money. Yeah. She's like, well, let me make some calls. And she called a family friend and he was able to get me an interview there. They're like, you're qualified. We'll send you to offshore survival school. Cool. I remember telling the guy, like, over the phone before I knew it was an offshore job. He's like, yeah, mud logging. And I just had this vision of being in back in Louisiana, <laughs> yeah. in the forest, in yeah. a muddy field, moving logs around. Right. And he's like, no. No. Logs. You know, journals. Right. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm so dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it's funny because my career started as a roughneck. And Hmm. when we would, you know, when I first broke out when I was 18 years old, my first experience on a drilling rig was we were rigging up. And, you know, so I got 
yeah, very, very interesting time getting through that process. But then, you know, as you know, you get in, you sput a well. I mean, I was walking around, like had no idea what was going on. And so, of course, the jokes get played on the 18-year-old kid coming out of the city who had no <laughs> real, you know, mechanical inclination or anything to do with like drilling a well. So the whole joke about, oh, we're logging. So here's a saw, go cut down a tree. So there I was <laughs> eager to please. I was running off the side of location. And, you know, this was in close to Rocky Mountain House. So out west of kind of between you know, Calgary and Edmonton and kind of straight west in, in the forest there. And I'm cutting down trees and branches and bringing them back. Oh, no, we need a little more, a little more. And <laughs> so yeah, whenever someone talks about logging and, and since then it's, you know, I've learned to appreciate what yes. logging can actually do. But yeah, if you need firewood and go on a rig <laughs> and someone will tell you to get some logs for logging, I'm sure someone out there will get you some logs. So that's funny. <laughs> Yeah, I look back at that and I was like, man, how did I get that wrong? And, and But there's so much that goes on on a rig that if you never knew what it was, you could end up easily doing exactly what they want you to do. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. The key to the V door. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> more recently, it's it's more like, oh, are you taking air samples? Ah, uh, yep. Heard you know, that one. Give the guy the trash bag. You got to go get this air sample over here. They need it for the emissions test. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 then, and the thing is, people these days like, oh, yeah, that's probably real. Right. Oh, yeah, because you don't know otherwise. You don't know what yeah. you don't know. And yeah. so it's like you're, right. you don't want to be that guy who does who, who <laughs> puts like, up any resistance to do anything labor intensive. It's like, oh, well, I'll do that. No problem. You don't actually have to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I love working offshore. I thought it was great. Yeah, okay. So you broke out as a mud logger collecting samples. And, and how long did you do that? And it, do you think that really helped kind of solidify your sort of reasoning for or at least intent to want to stay in oil and gas i mean did was there something through that experience you're like you know what this is fascinating like i want to pursue this even further or what did that look like so it's interesting that the experience that i had for the first couple of years was just that constant learning that that kind of motivating wow it's a new thing every day and it mm. was just it was amazing it, and it was fun and then after that and i kept kind of getting promoted rather quickly so i went from sample catching to more like a night logger on some wells and other wells back to sample catching. Yeah. But then got moved up to a supervisory position pretty quickly. And it was great, but now you're training people. You're also responsible sometimes just for the rig up. Mm -hmm. You may be there alone. And I started working offshore in 1998. So oil had hit $9.80 mm. about. I remember being in Mobile Bay working on an Exxon rig and the company man saying, oh no, that's not good. And I'm like, what? Looking around the room, like, is something on fire? Or yeah. like, you know, <laughs> new kid, you don't know anything. Yeah. And I was literally faxing in the mudlocking report to the geologist. Okay. And he's like, oh, they're going to shut down the rig. I'm like, did we mess up? Yeah. And he, and he goes, no, no, oil price. I remember that was the first time I really made the connection. Like, oh, what was it? He goes, it was about 38 bucks. Mm. I was like, wow. If you take something that far down, yeah. how, how can you make money at it? Right. And I did have a little, just working as, at a shop, you understood you had to, you know, working at Marble Slab, you understood how much the food cost is mm -hmm. and how much you sell every day. You right. kind of get an idea like, okay, I'm bringing, I'm bringing money in, but I have to pay that other stuff that I just sold. Right. What's my margin? You yeah. kind of get that somewhat small business sense yep. from that, right? Seeing that offshore, you instantly know wow, this thing costs a lot per day. Because you're seeing the reports. Exactly. Because he would just have me send off the IABC and everything. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, you're pretty good with computers. Yeah. 
why don't you do this yeah. admin work for me? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, what else can you fix? You know? Yeah. Oh, don't you have a bunch of polyline? The top co quit working on the drick floor. Can you go through the pollution pan over here and just run the new line for us? <laughs> yeah. Sure. Why not? Right. It's $9.80 a barrel. <laughs> yes, I can do anything. No kidding. Yeah. So our company went from, I think, having almost 32 units deployed to two units. Mm-hmm. And oh. they were able to keep enough people working to keep that, that stable of good Mud loggers, night loggers, sample catchers, all, all the people they really wanted to keep around, they kept them around by rotating them in and out. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to be one of those people. And so as things came back up, the rig deployment, oil price, everything picked back up again. So I was going to junior college this whole time, and I didn't think of of my job as an internship because it was a, it was a job. Mm -hmm. It was more like, School was part-time, and you'd work as much as you could. So I made a deal with my boss. I said, look, I really want to go to school, and I want to be an engineer. He said, well, maybe you can end up working for us as an engineer. I'm like, well, that would be great. Yeah. So they let me go to school. I'd work summers, winter, winter break, and Thanksgiving, long weekends. If someone needed a relief and I didn't have class and I could make it out to the land rig, I would drive out and give them relief. So I did that for four and a half years. And it was a great experience. And I, I loved it. And I thank those guys for giving me that shot. Yeah. Because that's what enabled me to, the oil field actually gave me the first start to getting a college education. Wow. And, you know, three and a half, call it, well, call it two and a half years in, was able to transfer into A&M. Wow. As an aerospace engineering student. <laughs> okay. And then, which is kind of weird because right. rockets go up, <laughs> bits go down. Right. <laughs> I like and I got that. told that all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. They, they would they give you pick crap up the intercom, pick up their mud logger. Yes. Hey, rocket scientists, come on down here. Yeah. And you're like, oh gosh, here we go. Right. I worked with a lot of guys from Mississippi. So being the guy from Texas, it's a rocket scientist. Imagine how that works out. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sure you develop some pretty thick skin out there. You do. Yeah. You do. No yeah. kidding. I want to fast forward a little bit and because and, I know we're coming up on the hour here and I certainly don't want to take more of your time than you've already sure. given. But so you go to A&M and then real brief, you switched into petroleum engineering or did you graduate yes. in aerospace? So I, tra I transferred into petroleum engineering. Gotcha. As a transfer student, you had to keep an A average. Okay. In order to stay in aerospace. So I, oh, well, it was, yeah. That's and it was tough. I bet. I ended up making, I think, a C in differential equations. They called me and, and literally said, find a new place to land. No way. So that's how you got into petroleum? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the petroleum engineering department was like, we'll take you. <laughs> well, I went over there and they're like, we just want to make sure you're not trying to find a, a place to sit around and, and wait to go back to aerospace. Yeah. I said, I think I'm done with aerospace. And I had that, a good amount of time offshore to like sit and think about, okay, if I'm not in aerospace, what am I going to do? Right. And... It just kind of clicked and it came together and it was more about not being in love with the romantic idea from your childhood, more being practical and seeing what you've been doing mm -hmm. and take advantage of what, of the gifts that you've been given. I've been given this great opportunity offshore. Yeah. I've learned so much about oil and gas. I have a natural kind of understanding what we're doing mm. and why not explore that yeah. in college? And I made that pitch to the Dean. His name is Dr. Larry Piper. And when I said that, and he goes, well, how long have you been doing that? And I said, oh, about three years now. And 
He goes, well, what took you so long? And he stood yeah. up and shook my hand. No and, way. Yeah, he's just a great old guy. He's super welcoming. And yeah. from there, it was just amazing. I, I enjoyed everything we learned there. It was very cool. It was like, this is where I'm meant to be. Yeah. Then you know. Wow. And you found that spot. And so, you know, fast forward, you work, so you get out and I know it's through going through LinkedIn, you work through several different operators, but I want to give you the opportunity to talk about navigation because oh, yeah, you guys absolutely. have a really neat story. And you actually wrote, I think three months ago, kind of a little write up on LinkedIn uh, mm-hmm. sharing the story. So I'd really like to you know ask you how you got onto navigation petroleum, a little bit about why they're unique in the marketplace, and then kind of give a elevator pitch for the powder river basin. Cause I think <laughs> sure. people need to hear it. Yeah. Well, Navigation Petroleum was really conceptualized in 2014. Okay. And by 2015, things were looking like, hey, this might be the time to launch. Prices are down. It's a good time to get in the market. Yeah. Some of the, the initial reviews that we'd done of the Powder River Basin still held true. So me and my partner felt pretty confident. I remember going to Wynn's downtown, a pretty good Vietnamese place. And we're, okay. we're sitting there about to eat some pho. And I love pho, by the way. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's like a Houston staple at this point. Okay. <laughs> I turned the presentation to him. I said, hey, look, look at these wells. We can do this. And we'd already worked some horizontal plays together at that point. Mm-hmm. And he looked it over and he goes, well, you know, are you, a, are you fiddling with the numbers? I said, this is raw data from the state. And these are one mile laterals. Yeah. And he's like, I'm in. And it was that fast. He understood right away wow. what we were looking at. Fascinating. Well, the... This might be a little bit of a mini pitch, but the Turner formation is the first thing we looked at. Yeah. And its distribution of well results was more tight around the average. So the extremely lows and extremely highs weren't as pronounced on, say, that S curve you find in log normal distribution curve. Mm -hmm. And so it was compressed around the average, which meant that whatever that average is, that means your results weren't far off from there, which you rarely see in that kind of data set. Okay. And that meant that people were kind of honed in on something good. Right. Because that average was about four, oh, call it about 400,000 barrels. Hmm. And I thought, that's like 383 MBO, but on a one mile lateral. Wow. I thought, man, if you could just do that cheap enough, you've got yourself something really, really meaningful there. Yeah. So we go start making pitches around town and I'm talking to all the big guys, all the big private equity companies, talking to the small ones, medium sized. And we were just surprised about how many people just really didn't know much about the powder. There were all these misconceptions. They were like, it's too expensive. It's cold. The well results aren't what people think they are. And, oh, it's going to be overpriced. And by the way, all the land is spoken for. Hmm. And we were like, well, gosh, can we help correct some of these misconceptions? Right. And, and so that's what a lot of time we, we spent a lot of time covering those. I mean, we heard everything from guys saying something like, well, if this data was accurate, this would be really good. Or, you know, if this was true, this would be compelling. Hmm. And you're just like, wait, uh, why do you think that's not true? And so I'd pull up the state website and show them. And sometimes they'd, they would be shocked. Yeah. Like, wait, 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 why do our data analysts say this? Well, they're making cross-reference communication problems. And it would be guys who had been looking at the Texas site and was looking at a field production number or a section production number and seeing several wells being added up to one. Mm. Whereas up in the powder, you could still do that, but there was just a drill down on the available data and you could get all the individual well results. Right. 
And so that's what I was doing. Hmm. We finally found a few groups that really understood what we were looking at and got traction with a couple of them. And the one who came in on top was Juniper. And they looked like they'd be our, our best bet at having a partner that was aligned with really going after the, the powder and getting a build from ground up position. Yeah. Because we weren't starting off with go buy a field, go go do this, go do that. The bird in hand, we literally came in and said, hey, look, we found some acreage we want to get. And this is the price. We can go buy that. We're going to have to build from there. And they were completely supportive of it. Hmm. So after getting funding in 2016 from them, maybe February by February, late February, 2017, mm-hmm. we had about 14,000 acres in hand. And then fast forward a little bit from there, we had 20,000 then 25. Oh. And today we're at 34, almost 35,000 acres. Okay. Net acres. Awesome. And how much would you say is I say like, where are you at in the campaign with regards to like how much land you have versus how much you've drilled up? I mean, is there a lot of life left or what does that kind of look like? That's pretty neat. The consumption of inventory in the powder, it depends on what bench you're in. Right. Focusing in on the Turner, a lot of people are in, are in the Turner. We look at that consumption rate as being kind of mild where the basin's at just because of the technology it was used back in 2014 for fracks is very different from what we're using now. Right. And even the knowledge and the understanding of how to attack a formation is, is just drastically different. Gotcha. And we saw it in our first well. We drilled our first well within 1,700 foot of, a, of another well, and it is producing at about 90, 95% of that well's anticipated EUR. Hmm. So the parent well had been on for two and a half years, fracked with an older conventional frack. We brought in something a little more modern and, for, and, and focused our frack to capture these laminations that are in the Turner. Hmm. And using our design, we didn't see the drainage impact, not to the severity you would think, okay. being that close. Right. Most people are saying, oh, only two Turners a section. And I think that spacing averages a little over or actually a little under five wells a section. So it proved up that you could take density to a higher place. There are other parts of the reservoir, though, that are different. Right. And we chop up the reservoir into 13 unique sections. And out of those 13 unique sections, they all have their own completion and development strategy. Wow. In the Parkman, we have it chopped into seven sections. But our our Turner study is over 35 townships, so a pretty big area. Yeah. Our Parkman study is compressed to about three or four townships. Mm. And so it's a more detailed study. It, it's really fine-tuned. Interesting. And in there, we have, I think, seven or eight unique reservoir characterizations. Hmm. And each one of those has its way of tacking it. So when you talk about how does inventory look in each one of those, it really depends on which compartment you're in. Sure. No, that makes sense. And we're in the early stages. We just drilled our, our latest well within, oh, half of a mile of a, another parent well and there's been development around it for over 12 years. No kidding. Just offset sections. Yeah. And that well looks like it's going to be in the upper 10% for sure. Wow. Of all the parkmans that have been drilled in that area. No kidding. In, in that area, do you see, like, do you suspect decline will be kind of high then? Or would being that it is that close for something that's been producing that long? Or So you would expect to see it like early on. Yeah. And we didn't see any re- any results like that. Wow. In fact, it's behaving 
if you plot up all the Parkmans through history and put them on their own decline curve, you can even average them or make a composite well and look at the shape of the curve. Our well actually matches that shape of the curve just higher up. Interesting. So it matches the, the typical decline you'd see on a original well drilled. Yeah. It's just producing more. Is that a function of just you managed to hit good rock or would you sort of contribute it to technology or just well design or what or a combination of it all? Definitely a combination of it all. I mean, you got to be in the right spot, period. Yeah. You know, there's, we don't have the science yet to turn bad rock into good rock. I wish we did. I wish we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, we're in, we're in pretty good rock, but having the right approach, putting the lateral in the right spot. Yeah. And then from there, connecting the rock to the lateral. That's the whole job of the frack. I think people miss sometimes the, the job of the frack. They, they think it's just to break rock or bust it up. It's actually to form a connection, a bond mm. to the rock. It allows the fluid to flow through it. It becomes the conduit to the wellbore. Yeah. And if you think about it in that term, then you design the frack from that wellbore position to accomplish the maximum accommodation for that oil and gas to hit the wellbore. Yeah. That's what we did. And we did it cheaply. So Very cool. Yeah. It was one of those things where it just talk about good surprises that come out of 2020. That's definitely one because... We spent, spent a lot of time looking at that and, you know, to, to hit the end of 2020 and get an approval to drill a well, it was our first Parkman. So it was our first well drilled in that formation. And it was in an area that was fairly densely drilled up. Wow. And our private equity guys got behind us and said, we're in support of drilling this well. And we came out there in the middle of winter on a one-off well and and drilled our fastest, cheapest well yet. No kidding. Wow. That's a nice feather in the cap. It was like a little badge of honor, you know, or like your little merit badge, you know, (laughs) on our sash. We're earning a few of those apparently. (laughs) Very good. Good. So does navigation have a continuous drilling program or do you guys more drill, sort of produce, evaluate, or what does that look like for you guys? It's kind of been a, a balance of that. Early on, it was, hey, you're a new team. This is the Powder River Basin. Go prove your salt. Our first three wells, the first one was offset apparent well that kind of proved a concept on spacing. You know, some people were a little scared to try that at first, but we did it Hmm. and it worked. And so it gave us a little more credibility as, okay, your your technical expertise seemed to be holding up. The second well came in above our predicted type curve by about 17, 18%. Our third well beat our predicted type curve by over 67%. And it was just kind of off to the races. We've tried some different formations. We've got a well in the Nairero. We have a variety of Turner wells. Mm-hmm. And now we have this Parkman well. But part of it is building out a business that works, right? So yep. we're not, we haven't really been focused on go try, experiment, experiment, experiment. It's been more go drill wells that can return a real cash flow, real dollar amount to the company. Yes. Not just have big headlines kind of thing. So <laughs> yeah. so we're really focused on costs as well. And it sounds like you're very disciplined in your business practices as well. We have to be, <laughs> right? I mean, so I remember we had some early on conversations with our, our private equity guys and we had submitted a budget to them and they were looking at it and they're like, I think your furniture budget's off by like a decimal or something. And I'm like, man, are we spending too much on furniture? And we'd found this guy, it's not off long point, but it's it's like a street back there. It's a little further north. I think it's over off like 249 or something. But, uh, yeah, off 249. Okay. He sells used office furniture. And we gone in, we negotiated some prices. 
they were like, hey, I don't think it should be that cheap. Oh, I was like, oh, okay, good. Okay, we're all right. <laughs> you were on the other side of the Ooh. spectrum. And I'm like, well, we, we, we're getting our furniture from this guy. He's like, this guy? I'm like, yeah, he literally has furniture in the back of a truck. I'm like, Fred, that's illegal. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, this is not illegal. Right. It, yeah. it, no, he literally, he has a shop. <laughs> he, he what are you, who are you supporting here, Fred? Yeah, yes. <laughs> you know, what's going on here? <laughs> and that's it turns funny. out he goes to downtown and he picks up furniture from these buildings oh. where, where people have like left and left all the furniture i'm sure that and especially well he probably he probably cleaned up over the last few years <laughs> oh gosh so he gave us whiteboards no way because he's like i've got so many i can't sell them and i'm like well what's so many he literally had over 200 whiteboards no kidding and so we went and picked out some of the best ones so i have like two gigantic whiteboards in my office and my partner's like you're never gonna fill that up I'm like, challenge accepted. Right, yeah. Now look, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like Picasso. Although, oh, right. it, there's so many notes on that thing. Yeah. The, the challenge is, how do you erase it all and, and start over? <laughs> yeah. No kidding. It, it's do it. You can save it. Well, I mean, yeah. you, know, you can take pictures of it if you need yeah. to. So real quick, before we close out, what makes for you the Powder River attractive versus, you know, going to the, the big and almighty sexy Permian or, you know, even the DJ Basin or... Bakken, you know, that's, you know, all rocky stuff. Where do you feel the value is for, for the Powder River and why hasn't it taken off? And and from the outside looking in is like every few years, you kind of see some headlines, right? Mm-hmm. Hard energy mm-hmm. might do something. And then next thing you know, there's a few little rumblings here and there, but then something else will then get busy. Why is that? So looking at it from the bird's eye view and, and you see like, okay, if you're an investor in oil and gas, you're probably out of Dallas, out of Houston, Right. Mm-hmm. Your backyard is a Permian. Yeah. You don't have to look any further. The Eagleford, the Barnett. Yeah. These were big, huge plays where you could put a lot of money to work. Why would you need to go up there for horizontals? Sure. It's always been viewed more of a conventional asset. Yeah. Some of the first horizontals drilled up there were in 2009. That had already been going on for quite some time here in Texas. So it's been a little behind the curve on that item. But also, okay. there were large family-run companies that dominated the powder for a long time. That's true. The Yates family, the Wold family, the Ballard family. Yeah. These folks, they had large pieces of the powder, and they're on a different schedule than, say, like an EOG or Devin who's going to come in and say, hey, we want to spend a billion dollars here. Right. Right? So it was part of capital coming into the Permian compared to the powder. Sure. And also the proximity to the investors and and what they're familiar with. I think that was a large part of it. When you look at it from that kind of lens, if you get a little more granular, then you realize, well, horizontal plays were really focused on resource plays. And the the Nibrera kind of blew up in the DJ. Right. Not so much the powder. Yeah. Because it was expensive. Mm. It was deeper. It was higher pressured, has more oil saturation, looks a little better. Yeah. (laughs) But the DJ was cheap. And it's a manufacturing process. Right. And you could just stamp them out. Right. And it's like 30 minutes from downtown Denver. There you go. <laughs> I mean, it sounds silly, but it's, it makes things even more attractive. It, it does. It does. Yeah. So then you look at all the horizontal stuff that was going on out there, Sprayberry, Wolf Camp, all that. Fantastic. Good results. A lot of people pouring a lot of money into the basin. You get up to the powder and you had these, we can't put 16 wells in a section, right? Yeah. You could put four turners in a section. Yeah. And so... That became like, well, hey, you can only put four. Yeah, but our individual well results, the economics on them are amazing. Mm. Yeah, but you can only put in four. 
it became this argument of mm-hmm. inventory versus economics. Wow. And so, which is so backwards. Well, so imagine our industry for a long time went through this focus on inventory. How much inventory can you put forth? And Wall Street backed it. And yeah, and I was going to say, cause, well, again, you'd think Wall Street's focused on the economics, but it's kind of sometimes. Well, everyone they is get, now. Yeah, well, right now, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I think people have hopefully learned their lesson. And you certainly see Wall Street looking for actually returns on the investment, which yeah. is, again, something it's fantastic. <laughs> right. I love it because that's, I think, why you're seeing a little more focus on the powder these days. And then some of it early on was people had gotten the inkling of, if you have a well that makes, that's going to make 500,000 barrels mm-hmm. and it costs you five and a half million bucks, you're close to that $10 F&D number. Mm-hmm. If you're at 50, 60 bucks a barrel, that works all day long. Heck yeah. These are just like standard, fundamental oil and gas stuff that you look at. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And it was getting back to that, not looking at, well, if I have a, you know, a hundred wells that make, you know, 17% rate of return. And, and I pour this amount of capital and it will make this money over time. It, it wasn't trying to play games on a small margin. Yeah. It was, oh, I get a real return. But now the, the story has become, well, how much inventory can you get? Right. I mean, we have 700 permits in the basin. Of those 700, we always tell people like, okay, yeah, that's 700 permits. We're holding some acreage. But we think viably... We've got over 10, 12 years of drilling ahead of us. Wow. And that's on our little position too. So That's fantastic. Yeah. It just shows you that there, there's a depth of target rich environment that other people don't have access to, right? Mm-hmm. And we do. And we're going to drill maybe four to six wells this year. And we only have nine wells. So we've been drilling since 2018. So it's been a little bit of a start and stop and yeah. 2020 kind of crush some dreams. We were hoping that would be the six to eight well program. Yeah. And then this year, it looks like it's going to be that four to six well program. Okay. And then in 2022, go to eight, maybe 10 Yeah. and have that capacity. Very cool. So wh- where do you see the, the future for navigation? I mean, are you guys pure play powder? Or are you looking to maybe spread your wings at any point? What does that look like 10 years from you now? You know, we love the powder. We love the powder. But we know that having grown up working South Texas, East Texas, the DJ Basin, even some North Texas stuff, North Louisiana, yeah. South Louisiana salt domes. Yeah. Been there, seen a lot of it, worked it as an engineer, and now have the option to do more. I, I think we, we could take on more. Now, we have a lot of Rockies experience on the team. And so we really do like Wyoming and the powder for that reason, because we're also familiar with it. Of course. But at the same time, so much of that knowledge is transferable elsewhere. In fact, when we were first peddling deals, we had one of the private equity companies say, you know, if you just hadn't brought in the powder and maybe brought something from East Texas, we'd be looking at something together. No kidding. And I was like, well, you're like, are you sure you don't have anything from East Texas? (laughs) I was like, no, we're going to focus on what we think can generate the most value, which was in the powder. 
that's what business is all about is value creation. And that's it. And so that's, that's it. And that sounds like you guys have done a successful job of doing it. So we may have to do a round two because I had a bunch <laughs> of other questions that I wanted to touch on. We didn't even talk about, you know, macroeconomic energy stuff, so, okay. which, you know, I'm sure you're interested in that. We kind of, oh, yeah. we, we dabbled a little bit before we started recording, but never really, really got a chance. But this has been a fantastic conversation, Fred. Good. I do have one last question before we close out is, you know, amongst, you know, because obviously being in the position you are within navigation, you're busy. Is there anything that you do or do you have any daily habits or routines that kind of contribute to the success of yourself personally, whether it's waking up and meditating or running at night or I mean, is there anything that kind of allows you to recalibrate on a daily basis to kind of refocus, zone in and then recharge and, and attack? Is there anything? Absolutely. So a couple things, actually. I, I usually do a nightly meditation. Ah, okay. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Headspace app. Yeah, I no way. That. That's funny. That's, that's I great. used, I've yeah. used, so I, I've dabbled in a few of them. Headspace is one that I stuck with for a long time. But I'll be honest, when COVID hit and I had to take some pay cuts, I looked at all my subscriptions and got rid of all the ones that I, I didn't think were absolutely 100%. I think I kept Wall Street Journal. I think that one's 100% worth it, though. I, it, I do. I know. And I would tend to agree. I kept Wall Street Journal and like Kidopia for my kids. Those oh, yeah, were the yeah, only yeah. two that I ended up keeping. But again, didn't mean to interrupt, but I have no, used Headspace. Yeah. I love it. In fact, Andy's my favorite so far. So yeah. I use it for more like the wind down yeah. part. And then in the mornings, I do take a time to just write down at least three things that I'm really grateful for. Awesome. And it's like a gratitude journal almost? Kind of like that. It's more like a gratitude notes yeah. to yourself. And you can awesome. go back and look through your other gratitude from the few weeks before. and like, oh, I remember that. Yes. But then under it, I write down an amazing thing from yesterday. Right. And it takes the gratitude and puts it into a deeper deeper level of wow. understanding what you're really, really, really thankful and how you can capture that moment and remember it. And like yesterday's was just, my son had gone through some baseball challenges, ups and downs. And yesterday he just came up and gave me this like super big, strong hug. And he's growing so fast. How now. old is he? He's 10. Okay. But he's like above my shoulder. Yeah. And so he comes up and gives me this strong hug and he just goes, daddy, I love you. Wow. And I was like, Where's that coming from? Right. But okay. <laughs> yeah. I love hey, it. Yeah. I'll bring it. I'll take please. it while I can get it, man. Yeah. Because yeah. I know when you're a teenager, probably not going to be so frequent. Hey, as a parent and my son's two years old and he okay. gives me yeah. these amazing bear hugs. And so I just know whenever he gives that to me, I'll be holding him and he'll wrap his chubby arms around my neck and just <laughs> squeeze me and then nuzzle himself in my shoulder. Man, if I could somehow just like capture that oh, yeah. emotion and then like put it in my pocket for whenever I'm feeling <laughs> down. But I mean, again, as a father to a son, I admire that. And I think that's, that's amazing. So well, it's amazing if, if you write down those little moments yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, you'll fill up a book quick, but yeah, you can go back and look and you'll remember stuff right later on that you have forgotten. That's so true. No, it's being able to look back and reflect. It's amazing. And so I think writing things down is, is something that a lot of folks, some do, some don't, but yeah. I think there's a ton of value in it. So that's an interesting take. I can certainly appreciate that. Before we close out, I want to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming OGGN events. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for May 2021. This month, we have four events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our online events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. 
First up, we have our in-person event, which is 20YPO's Networking Mixer at the Houston Club on May 25th. Next, we have our three online events, the Post-Industrial Summit Series from May 4th to June 22nd, the Data Fabric and Data Ops webinar on May 5th, and the Maritime Career Day hosted by Women Offshore on May 21st. Other than these events, OGDN has a live stream this month titled Identifying and Evaluating Advantage Oil Projects on May 5th. So make sure to check that out on our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information. You can also find more information about that or any of the live streams or events we have coming up also on Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for May. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Great. Thank you. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Fred, thanks again for joining me today. This has been an absolute pleasure. What's the best way for folks to, if they're interested to hear more about navigation, maybe even some resources for the Powder River, maybe some investors that are like kind of spark some interest. What, what would you say or what, what are some good resources? Absolutely. You can reach out to us. We're always available. I think our contact information is on our website. Perfect. I'll put the link in the show notes. That okay. way people can scroll and click if need be. Just for the powder in general, there's been some good SPE papers out there that have been generated. But I think, honestly, just to, if you really, really, really want to dive in on the powder, go to the Wyoming Oil and Gas Conservation Commission website okay. and check it out. They have a data site. It's a little old school. But they have mountains of data. And perfect. if you're a data person and you really want to dig in, yeah. start there. Okay, perfect. We'll also put that link in the show notes. Well, again, everyone out there, certainly appreciate this continued support. If you could leave a review, subscribe, share it with your friends, family. And always remember, when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.